Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I, uh, if there's anything incoherent about this talk, it's uh, something more that we can blame on the president, because uh, he spoke last night in Medford, Oregon, and my children all wanted to go and see him. So I couldn't start driving up here till about 10 last night. I thought it was important for them to go and see him. I thought they were right. It's good. I thought they should see a president while we still have one. <coughs> I write an, a newsletter called Access to Energy. And it, has, it after Peter Beckman died, he asked me to do this. And it's caused me to learn and study uh, current affairs more than I ever wanted to because I preferred the laboratory and my science. But I'm going to talk, the principal uh, subject of this talk is the effect that the government and government misbehavior has upon medicine, and particularly medical research, and the tools that you're provided for to do your actual work. But I'll uh, begin by talking about its effect on some other industries, because they also affect us all, and they're topical. Uh, I recently read... Uh, Red China will build, over the next five years, 60 nuclear power plants. This adds to the ones they already have, including the two that Bill Clinton built for them. And so by the end of five years, they probably will have achieved parity, or even greater than parity, with the United States in nuclear power, since we have 100 plants that are aged, and they will have 60 brand new ones. There's a big difference between generating your power by nuclear power and by windmills. And the two candidates for president have opposite ideas in this. President Kerry has promised to shut down the beginning uh, resurgence of nuclear power that President Bush has started. There are actually some new plants uh, getting ready for licensing. And the uh, nuclear uh, repository for nuclear waste is being opened. Uh, Kerry's pledged to shut that and stop this and give us alternate power instead alternative power instead. As far as hydrocarbons, uh, of course, Kerry favors UN rationing, and the president is the only world leader who stands between us and the Kyoto Protocols, which is United Nations rationing of our hydrocarbon energy. Uh, I have, we have a sort of a personal interest in this. My children and I uh, circulated a petition a few years ago among American scientists about their opinions of the Kyoto Protocol and of the science or lack of science that underlies it. We sent letters out for about a week, and we got the signatures of 17,000 American scientists urging the government not to institute the Kyoto Protocols and not to allow UN rationing of energy, and saying the science underlying it was basically non-existent. Uh, for that, John Kerry personally wrote an editorial in the Boston Globe saying that we were liars and frauds and we made up the whole thing and uh, dummied up the whole list. He wrote that editorial without ever asking to see the signatures, which we had, or checking in any way. I will uh, talk uh, largely about government grants and the effects of taxes, regulations, and litigation upon government research and medicine. Of course, it affects everything else, too. And during the last four years, we've seen a gradual change, a beginning reduction in our taxes, a beginning diminution of regulations, and some beginning actions on stopping litigation, uh, tort litigation, especially in medicine. Uh, there's a big difference between these two candidates, since one of them actually wants to make a, tort, a medical tort lawyer vice president. Uh, 
<clears throat> the, uh, uh, there are many other things that I think about. You know, I, I have, like many of you, probably libertarian tendencies. I'd like to vote for the best man for president. We don't have that opportunity. We have an opportunity to decide whether Kerry or Bush will be president. And one of the alternatives is, un is to me, unthinkable. In any case, uh, I want to give one example, uh, talk about one thing, uh, which is, before I go to the medical things, that is basically the same. Uh, one of the big issues, especially among uh, libertarian and uh, sort of broadly thinking uh, uh, people is the free trade agreement, NAFTA. Now, of course, it's a, a disastrous bureaucracy, as all government programs are, full of all kinds of perks and oddities that uh, favor various people. But the main issue is free trade, whether we should have free trade. It's been an issue in the United States for a long time. We fought a revolution 200 years ago largely over free trade. The founding fathers wanted free trade, and Britain uh, didn't want to give it to them. Now, of course, free trade is the cause of the escape of all our industries abroad. Uh, we need to direct trade barriers to prevent our industries from being taken over by the Chinese and the Asians and so forth. The issue really isn't, the problem isn't free trade. The problem is the same thing that affects our medical research and so many other things in the country is taxes, regulation, and litigation. By the time you add up the taxes and the further tax of regulation, and the further tax of runaway litigation, this monkey on the back of the American worker is so large that he cannot compete in the world. He can't. He cannot compete on an even deal. So people want us to erect trade barriers to protect him. And of course, this doesn't work in the long run. In, medi in medicine and in medical research, where I've spent much of my life, I started out as a basic scientist in protein chemistry. And I wanted to spend a little of my time doing things that were immediately applicable to human well-being. And so I split for much of my career, spent my time between basic research and medical research. And I learned, if starting idealistically, I thought, well, you need to do this research and find how to do something better about a disease, and then people will use it. And it's a question of gaining knowledge about how to, to help people's health. And I learned very quickly that the closer you got to human health, the more it was politics and the less it was science. In fact, almost entirely politics. But I'll give a couple of examples, a few examples that I think are, are uh, indicative. There's a man, most of you have never heard of him. His name is R.B. Merrifield. He's one of the most, probably one of the three or four most famous living chemists. And much of our research world today was shaped by him. He invented a technique called solid phase organic chemistry, which made it possible for machines to synthesize proteins, to synthesize peptides, revolutionized protein chemistry, and then his techniques spilled over into DNA, and the fundamental techniques that enable scientists to make pieces of DNA, and therefore the entire genetic revolution, including the sequencing of the human genome, all follow and flow from the work that this man did. And appropriately, he received an unshared Nobel Prize in chemistry. After he'd gotten that prize, and he, this is a man that works, he's at Rockefeller University, and he's a man who works at the bench by himself with his own hands. He has all his life. Uh, he uh, follows in the tradition of uh, scientists at Rockefeller who have done this really since John D. Rockefeller set it up. The, the, the story of what they did during the pandemic, of influent pandemic in 1918 uh, in an effort to stop the epidemic is a, is a, a similar thing where they, the men, if you remember at Rockefeller, uh, you weren't a guy that sat in an office and shuffled papers and got a grant and 
told your graduate students what to do. You went into the laboratory and worked with your own hands. Well, this tradition has followed. Merrifield worked for a man named D.W. Woolley. Woolley was a remarkable man. He was a member. That means a controlled basically a whole floor in a building at Rockefeller and a large research group. And Woolley worked at the bench with his own hands daily throughout his whole life until he died, an old man. The interesting thing was that he was totally blind. He never saw anything he'd ever did. A technician stood beside him, handed him the test tubes, told him what she saw, and his wife read the literature to him, and he was a great, quite famous scientist. Well, following that tradition, Merrifield's the same way. And he, as I say, revolutionized both genetic chemistry and protein chemistry by his discovery. After he finished that, after he had a Nobel Prize, he became fascinated with an antibiotic, cecropin, which is a 15 amino acid, 15 residue antibiotic naturally occurring. And he wanted to know why this antibiotic worked and whether it could be modified or utilized in some way for human health. It's, of course, said that we need more antibiotics. There's a lot of uh, stuff in the press I read and things that's saying that uh, diseases have become immune to antibiotics. I suppose that's true, and many of you probably know for sure whether it's true. I don't because I haven't read the research literature on it, and I've found that the difference between what you read in the newspapers and the research literature in the areas I do know something about is so great that I wouldn't assert it on the basis of not before I'd read all the literature. But in any case... There seems to be a good need for good uh, antibiotics. So Merrifield set out to study cecropin. Remember, this is not some giant research group with 20 guys turning out papers and publishing things with 16 authors and so forth. This is just a man standing at the bench who stood at the bench and revolutionized one aspect of our science. He worked on it for years and years and years. The uh, process, since it had 15 amino acids in the chain, to modify the amino acids, basically map it, map its fundamental characteristics by changing the amino acids one at a time, and to figure out how it worked. <clears throat> and studying its effect on the bacterial walls, it turns out that it causes little holes in bacterial walls. It, it uh, sort of dissolves in the wall and makes ion channels, and things just flow in and out, and the bacteria dies. Bacteria can't defend against it because virtually all bacterial cell walls are the same and it works the same on all of them. And it's not directed against some particular enzyme or particular protein. It's just a thing that makes holes in their cell walls. Uh, he found that it would work as L-amino acids, as it's found in nature. He found he could make it out of D-amino acids and get the same thing. He published 52 scientific papers on this subject. He stopped publishing when he was finished. There was nothing more to do. He's shown that it could be made in D form so that it would be very slowly metabolized. He uh, showed it worked against grab-negative, grab-positive bacteria. It worked great against tuberculosis. It was uh, sort of a perfect antibiotic. The D form, and especially because of the nature of its function, means that bacteria could not become immune to it. And moreover, it, the way that it works is sort of benign. They just sort of kill the bacteria without perhaps stimulating the immune system to... Uh, cause so much immune response, which also kills people in pneumonia. So this is a wonderful substance, but you can't use it because it hasn't been produced or licensed. It's been many years since he published his 52nd paper and stopped. But, you know, decisions about what drugs will reach the marketplace are made by accountants and lawyers. We don't really know why industry hasn't produced this, except that maybe he published too many papers. No doubt the accountants and lawyers will tell them that the $2 billion uh, 
cost of entry for a new drug might better be spent on something else that you could be more sure that you had patent protection on, whatever. In any case, it's not been done. Now, in a free society or a free research environment, this shouldn't be such a terrible problem. So some big company hasn't spent $2 billion and delivered this stuff. We should be able to find out more. I can go in my lab and make you a pound of this next week, a couple of pounds if we want. And no doubt there are people dying all over Oregon with, uh, in intensive care units of respiratory diseases that it would be interesting to see what would happen to them. They're going to die anyway. But, of course, if I were able to convince a couple of you guys to do this, or people who have their care under their control, uh, first the lawyers would take everything we have, and it wouldn't matter whether we had anything or not, because the state would house us for a long time. It's not possible for a scientist to make this substance and then go down and see a couple of MDs that would be interested and try it out on people. Oh, you could get a clinical trial started if you have enough money and enough time and enough political savvy to devote huge amounts of effort to it. But as I say, that may not be economically feasible because of the nature of the substance. But there lies a wonderful medical discovery, not just a discovery, but something worked out in great detail. And it probably is a finer antibiotic than anything you'll ever have your hands on. And you won't have your hands on it because of taxes, regulation, and litigation. Taxes, which have sucked the money out of the private sector and put it in the public sector, where it was only applied by bureaucrats who make bad decisions and committees. Regulations, which prevent ordinary scientists from making any progress because of uh, the nature of this I just alluded to. And litigation, which would wipe out anyone. I mean, I suppose if I went out, some, suppose the government wouldn't put me in jail for studying this and we made some, we treated 50 patients that were about to die anyway, no doubt one of their lawyers would decide they died because we used the antibiotic on them and that'd be the end of us. That's one example. Another example I'll use is uh, nutrition. Nutrition and preventive medicine. Preventive medicine, I know many of you are interested in preventive medicine, but <clears throat> preventive medicine doesn't get too far either because of these similar factors. Uh, research, you know, research, and we, we can talk about utilizing or studying or applying or working on something like this that Merrifield has already accomplished, and also talk about what is the, what is the situation in basic research on medicine. Well, the situation is that it's all folks virtually totally controlled by those on government grants and those working for big drug companies who, who suffer under enormous economic litigation and regulation uh, disincentives, which cause them to work only on very specific things. Almost all the research establishment of the United States is now captured by government. Economics, the taxation has seized half of the earnings of the American people. The other half is used to keep what we can going of our lives and our industry. And the money that would alternately be in the public sector, which should go to research, as research was funded before World War II, just isn't there. Institutions, even, in, even great institutions. I graduated from Caltech. My son recently did, too. And the Caltech campus is twice the size it was when I was there. Their endowment actually covers half their expenses. But government grants cover the other half, and that means that none of the campus can do something different than the government would like, because half of their funding would be at stake. And of course, many institutions, it's, it's almost full funding would be at stake. 
The grant system has grown into basically a giant welfare system for bees. And within that system, there are still very fine scientists trying to do their work, and then a, a huge pile of scientists that aren't very good that just live on the system. But if you can't sell it to a government committee, you, you mustn't do it. And I'll give some examples of it in a minute. But even, even other things which aren't in actually doing the research are affected. Uh, in the mid-1970s, I was doing uh, a lot of work. Uh, Linus Pauling and I were doing a lot of work on nutrition and preventive medicine. And I built a little section of our lab that had a thousand mice in it, and we were studying the effect of nutrition and, on squamous cell carcinoma, studying the dose-response curve of one vitamin after another on, on the growth rate of cancer in these mice. Squamous cell carcinoma induced by UV light, uh, pathologically identical to the human form. And some people walked into my office and started talking about raw fruits and vegetables. They were very articulate. Their names were Hunsberger. They were very articulate, and they got me interested. So I, I decided I'd play with a few of the mice on the side with this odd thing. It was really a form of diet restriction. You know, if you try to live on raw fruits and vegetables, there's so much water and fiber in them that you just can't get enough calories, and it's a, a form of diet restriction. Many of you probably heard of this in the popular sector one way or another. But it was astonishing in our case because as soon as we put the mice on this diet, the growth rate of cancer dropped by a factor of 10, tenfold. And we did about 40 different experiments on it. It was always the same. If, on the other hand, we gave them super nutrition, lots of vitamins, basically the sort of thing that a, a reader of nutrition, mag a prevention magazine in the 70s would have done if he tried to do everything at once, then we could double the cancer growth rate. We varied the cancer growth rate in squamous cell carcinoma in mice over a range of 20-fold by just whether they had supernutrition or sharply restricted nutrition. Now this, as far as a general phenomenon, is, is well known. In the uh, 40s and 50s, a man named McKay started studying diet restriction in rabbits. It's been extended now to everything from rabbits to fruit flies. Uh, vast amounts of research have been done on diet restriction in animals. And the results are always the same. Uh, life extension of 25 to 30 percent, marked de uh, reduction in degenerative disease. There's no question that diet restriction diminishes the probability of death at any, given, at any given age. That's an overall phenomenon that's throughout, basically true throughout the animal kingdom. And true for us, too. It's not a bad idea to restrict your diet later in age, later in life. But in these mice, it varied over that range. Well, that's nice. And it would, it would seem like if you uh, uh, could vary the growth rate of a cancer like that over a factor of 20 in an animal system, and it's a cancer that humans get, that it might be useful to study this in other ways. So we decided we'd publish this. Ultimately, we tried to publish it in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where I published a lot of papers. The paper was submitted by three Academy members, including one with a Nobel Prize. It was perfectly acceptable. Everything went fine, except the National Academy of Sciences is also afraid of the lawyers. They have a special thing there, a little medical committee. Doesn't matter who, what the scientists say, doesn't matter what the system says, if a paper has any medical implications, and it looks like the publication of it might bring any liability or potential liability on the academy, they simply stop it. So they did. Couldn't publish it in the Proceedings of the National Academy. It was published in another place, a relatively prominent place, but it, it uh, illustrates a point. Even the American National Academy of Sciences doesn't dare publish anything in your profession 
that's a little out of the mainstream or that might bring them into any kind of risk of litigation. Uh, and also, uh, they are also concerned about funding considerations and government uh, uh, approval of what they do. Another area that, I'll, uh, that I could use as an illustration, the best illustration was Merrifield's, but the nutrition and cancer is a good one too. Uh, I don't understand why this hasn't spread. It's been 20 years now since those experiments were done. And although there's plenty in the health food, alternative medicine, folklore about these things, there's no mainline science. And of course, you wouldn't get a dime out of the funding system to study these things. We became very interested in, Pauling and I, in the early, uh, early uh, 70s, in the problem of quantitative measurement of human health. We wanted to do experiments in which we studied the nutritional requirements of a human being as a function of, both as a function of the human being and also within himself. In other words, if you have a, make a graph of health versus the amount of a substance in the diet, uh, if it's a nutrient, if it's a vitamin required for life, of course, there's no health without it. And then as you add it to the, to the diet, the amount, uh, the health will rise until it reaches some maximum, and then it'll turn over and go down and eventually kill him because everything is a poison if given enough quantity. So if it was vitamin C, for example, you'd have no, no life without it, death without it. Then your health would rise as you gave more and more to the, to the individual, reach a maximum, and then eventually he'd be killed by vitamin C overdose. Uh, if it's not a required nutrient, but still one of value, it wouldn't start at zero, but it would have a similar curve. So the question is how to find these maxima. And the biggest impediment is that there was no rigorous, simple, cheap, quantitative measurement of human health. So we started to study the profiling of health, profiling of biochemical health, and uh, writing papers on breath analysis, urine analysis, blood analysis, where we would measure two or 300 substances and look for patterns, uh, rigorously look for quantitative, mathematically useful patterns in these uh, measurements. This was then. My son brought in an article from Scientific American not long ago by a guy who's studying breath analysis, and he he has his breath analyzer, and he's working away at it, and Scientific American uh, featured him. He said he was stimulated to do this by a paper he read in 1971. I read the Scientific American article, and I was struck by something. I remember in 1971, I had better breath analysis procedures than he has today when I wrote the paper that stimulated him to spend the next 30 years working on it. But... Uh, He's worked in a kind of vacuum because this sort of thing is not very popular with the government. Now, to give an illustration, there's a, uh, we worked on this in the 70s and then for various reasons have not worked on it for a while. I'm beginning again, but it doesn't, science, these sorts of things don't, don't go forward because of heroes or particular research groups. That they, the whole, there are lots of people out there looking for interesting things to do if they're able to do them. But in any case, uh, one day in the 1980s, I talked to a, a famous mass spectroscopist at Rockefeller University, a man named Brian Chite. He's a member, of probably one of the best mass spectroscopists in the world, has a dozen machines, great power, and much more resolving power than anything we ever had in the 70s. And I tried to interest him in doing a profiling experiment in one of his machines. He said, well, he says, I would love to do this. He says, it's a wonderful experiment. I think it would work. I think that and this is a, an effort to make a new diagnostic procedure, something that would be far superior to anything any of you can do with the training you have. And uh, he said, I'd like to do it. He said, I think it'd take a grad student about six months to work out the techniques you're suggesting, and then we could do it. But I can't. He says, I don't dare. 
He says, I have about a dozen mass spectrometers. I have a large research group. And if the government caught me doing anything that I hadn't put in the grant applications and gotten approval for, I'd lose my whole lab. I, I don't dare. We can't do it. That's the way it is. And we're not talking about some little guy who's struggling, you know, and he's got some story to tell you and, and some excuse for what he didn't get done. This is one of the top men in the world in the uh, uh, development and use of the most powerful method of, uh, biochemical, of chemical analysis that exists. In another instance with the same man, he helped us a lot in some of our basic research, not doing anything, of course, his grants wouldn't allow it, and we don't use grants, so we could do what we wanted, but uh, on a small scale, but uh, we were, Noah and I were studying, uh, made a lot of studies of the denamidation of peptides uh, and proteins, which we, which is a sort of a clocking mechanism for living things, and anyway, we were doing a lot of studies of simple model peptides in the mass spectrometer. We noticed that uh, if the conditions were right, there were always four water molecules attached to the ends of our peptides. And, and uh, it seemed to be very tenuous. These things wouldn't come off. There's some sort of little structure of the water attached to the ends of the peptides. Well, structure of water is very important. You know, everything happens in water. All biochemistry happens in water. Hydrogen atoms are hard to see, so there's not as much known about this as there should be. And it's been out of popularity for a long time. Bureaucrats are not interested in the structure of water. But we noticed this, and we couldn't. We thought it was both fascinating, and, and we wondered what was known about it. So we called up Professor Chait and said, look what we saw. What do you think of this? He says, oh, yeah. He says, I saw the same thing. This is very interesting. I designed a whole mass spectrometer just to study this, but I tried the government. They're not interested. They should be, but they're not interested, so I can't do it. Um, the best scientists are largely restricted in this way. In fact, it can get ridiculous. Merrifield, whom I mentioned before, uh, literally revolutionized protein chemistry. We use lots of models. Uh, they're using the computer today, but they were uh, used to be plastic. They were invented, actually, at Caltech. They're called CPK models, Corey Pauling and uh, Colton. And you've probably seen them, or pictures of them, space-filling models of molecules. They're very beautiful. They should be in Toys R Us for the children, but they're not. They cost a fortune, and they're only available from a company that happens to have control over the dyes. Merrifield, in one of his research grants to the government, asked if he could have a few CPK models to make models of his peptide and other things. They decided, in their wisdom, that he didn't need those things. That's, that's how bad it gets. In any case, the, uh, uh, the government has taxed away from the American people most of the money that could be used for medical research. They have placed regulations such that people like myself or other scientists, physicians, anybody, cannot on their own hook do very much medical research that's of use, and uh, dress things out with lawyers that would destroy us if we tried, even if the regulators didn't. Now, it could be said this is incompetent. It's a waste of resources. They, they're, they're so benign. They're trying. They're trying to do the right thing. They just don't know any better because they're bureaucrats and they work in committees. I'll tell you a story that uh, illustrates something about that. I had a, uh, uh, I was very fortunate. I, I went to, I, my thesis advisor was a man named Martin Kamen who discovered carbon-14. He was a very remarkable man and uh, lived in a, an extraordinary scientific era, very personable. He knew everybody. And near the end of his life, I said, you know, you should write one more book. You should write a book. You know where all the bodies are buried. Write about all the stories in science that we really need to know. 
And Camus says, nah, I would never do that. Uh, but he should have. And I only know a few of them, but I'll tell you one personal story that will illustrate that it's not really just a sort of benign neglect or we're making mistakes. We really don't, you know, we're committees, but we don't do the right thing. The same thing, the profiling I was talking about. We uh, were using, in the 70s, we were using chromatography. We're, we built some extraordinary chromatographs that could measure quantitatively a couple of hundred things in a breast sample or a urine sample or a blood sample and an extraordinary uh, computer system, which was difficult in the 70s, to analyze these things and do quantitative uh, profiling experiments. But around that time, around 1970, actually, a man named Bill Aberth wandered into our lab at Stanford. We had a lab at UCSD and one at Stanford also until we moved out on our own. And he, he was at Stanford Research Institute, and he came in one day, and he says he, he had an idea of a new mass spectrometer. And uh, this mass spectrometer has an odd characteristic that it would not break the molecules. In those days, the mass spectrometer was used solely for identifying chemical substances. You would feed the substance in, molecule would be smashed into pieces. You look at the masses of the pieces, and put the puzzle back together, you figure out its structure. Not been used as a quantitative tool, and you couldn't see the molecular ion. You couldn't see the substance unsmashed. So you couldn't do quantitative analysis on the substance at all because it was broken into pieces. Merrifield, or, or Aber said, I have a way to make molecular ions in the source of a mass spectrometer so that we can see the molecules uh, intact without breaking them. Now, today, this is very easy. Most mass spectrometers can do this, but this was 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago. He said, but the trouble is, I, I know how to build this device, but I, I don't have any use for it, and I wonder if you could think of some use so that we could apply for money and I could build this machine. And I immediately said, well, the use is to substitute for our chromatographs. So you don't break them, you'll have... 10 times as much resolution as we have in the, in the chromatograph, and the analysis will be over in two minutes instead of two hours. This would be fantastic. Let's build this device. And so uh, we took it to polling. The three of us applied, and it worked. Those were in days before I knew better. I knew that uh, uh, government, I, I really understood what government money was, and I was a young guy, and I was applying for grants like everybody else. And, and wasting a lot of people's tax money. Anyway, we got your, some of your tax dollars, got about a quarter of a million to build this machine, equivalent of about a million today. And Bill scurried back to SRI, and he built it. Uh, there's always politics in science. People are people, and not just in, in every area. There was a man named Michael Anbar there who was a more senior scientist, and he saw this technique, and he sort of coveted it. He wanted it. And he worked the politics around at SRI, so he got to be Bill's boss and kind of got control over the machinery, except we had this grant. And things started to go badly. You know, he, he didn't want to let us do runs on our machine. He was, there was a lot of politics going on. Finally, uh, we got the NIH administrators in, and Anbar was back down, and he had to agree to allow us to measure 200 samples in the machine that our grant had built. Uh, so I put together an experiment of 200 samples. Uh, now, I needed... I knew there was a grant renewal period coming up, and so I was going to have to look good at the grant renewal people to get another grant. So I designed the experiment so that some of the profiles we were looking at were so simple you couldn't fail. I mean, in the simplest chromatograph with 15 substances, we could see them. So I knew they would succeed. And in addition, I put parts in the experiment of things that had never been done before. That would be very remarkable, the diagnosis of two or three kinds of cancer and so forth. So I had a spectrum in these 200 samples. I had all the controls, and then I had the test samples for quite a few different human conditions from simple, it can't fail, out to it would be spectacular, sort of the gradient of them. 
so that we would be sure to succeed, and I didn't know how much we would succeed. So the samples were, and we had a little more problem in the politics because Ambar wouldn't let us hook a computer to the machine, so each sample spit out 2,000 numbers, and there were 200 samples, so we had 400,000 numbers on the table on printed paper when we got the analyses done. That was easy. I hired a lady, and she typed the 400,000 numbers into the computer. And then my wife and I, did the, who was a systems programmer, did all the statistics. It took us about a month, and uh, we failed. I, a random number generator would have done the same thing. It was exactly the same thing. It was a total failure. This experiment was zero. It did nothing. It was a total failure. And the grant period was over. Uh, Anvar uh, ran half a dozen samples through it in one disease and claimed he saw something and quit publishing clinical chemistry. And We were in kind of an odd shape because we said we invented the technique, but we can't show that it works, so we can't even counter this. So I, I thought, well, this is useless, but you know, you always apply again. So I completely changed direction, asked for different equipment, different machinery, take an entirely different line of research, had to abandon this. It was a total failure for reasons I could not comprehend. And the site visit committee came. You know, these committees come. There are about eight guys on the committee plus the administrator, and they listened to my, my tale of woe about how we had totally failed and then gave me every dime I asked for. They gave me hundreds of thousands of dollars for this new direction I was going. They, I could have asked for twice as much. It was a blank check. That, too, was odd. Anyway, we went off in this other direction, did some worthwhile things, but nothing like this would have been. Well, a lot of years passed. I stopped working with polling. We had an argument. We, things passed. The grants administrator who had run this grant retired. He was a very fine man, actually. He worked in government because he thought he could help get some useful things done in medical research. But one time as I was in Washington, I met him, and he took me to dinner at a place called the Cosmos Club in Washington. And then after dinner, we went out to his car to get drive away. And dark, we get in the car. He doesn't start the engine. He says, uh, I th want to talk to you. He says, I, I want you to know, I think it's something you should know, because I feel it's my only black mark against my record in government, and I think you should know. He says, remember that experiment of yours that failed. When it failed, I received a letter from Mike Anbar telling me that he had gone in the laboratory at night and scrambled all your sample labels so they would all be scrambled and, and you would fail. Uh, and you would get random numbers. In the letter, he included the code to unscramble them. This was sent to the main grants administrator in NIH. He says, it was so unusual, I asked my superiors what they thought I should do with it. And they didn't know, so they sent it on up. And it went all the way to the top of NIH, the National Institutes of Health, which funds all of your health research. And committees met, it was considered carefully, and the word came back to me. I was ordered to destroy the letter and never mention it to any scientist involved in the problem. Because it might interfere with the funding and publicity of the agency, and therefore you were to never know. Uh, this seems sort of unbelievable. You're learning this in a dark car in Washington, but in fact, you didn't destroy the letter. I have it today. That's exactly what it is. Unfortunately, the data was no longer available and was probably obsolete at the time because a long time later. This is the agency that is directing your medical research. Uh, everything sinks to the lowest common denominator of a committee, and the money that should have been in the private sector. I used to say I would rather go up against a hundred of the most crotchety, nasty, closed-minded, wealthy men with an idea and try to get one of them to help me with it than to go up against the government committee, which is generally a hopeless 
hopeless thing. The, but you see, our problems are not they're the same as the guys in nuclear power. Regulations have prevented them from building nuclear power plants for 30 years. Now, this is not your field, but believe me, it's serious. All of us, myself, my family, all of you, no doubt, we all have our little niches in this society, and we're all very, very well off. We're all we've found a niche in which we live, and things go well for us. And as physicians, you do things that are useful for people and worthwhile, and we try to do it as scientists as well. But we depend upon the society around us. A niche in a third world economy is not going to be very big. And it's not also going to be very pleasant when the 300 million people in that economy have been used to living in an entirely different world. Uh, the the, the uh, challenges are great. We buy, we, we earn our own money. We don't, I, I eventually learned better about government grants and I can say today I've never seen a government funded health project that justified the confiscation of the property of men, women, and children by threat of force. I don't think that it's right to fund research with government money, but I did in those old days. But since we don't do that, of course, we try to spend the money that we earn in the best way possible, or that people share with us, and we go to a lot of auctions. And auctions do various things. We get laboratory equipment at auctions often, and also we get other things related to our other enterprises. The children are all grown now, and we do a variety of things. But auctions are sort of interesting. If you were to go on the Internet today, eBay and a couple of things like it, look at auctions. Every, uh, every week, maybe twice a week, you could buy the best computerized milling, machine, milling machines in the world. You know, you don't make stuff in machine shops anymore. They don't walk in and make aircraft parts on lathes and drill presses. Uh, they're computerized machines that can make a, a metal piece to a thousandth of an inch tolerance, ten thousandth of an inch tolerance at high speed. These machines are wonderful things. Uh, they sit there and you put this block of metal in and it makes anything your computer can imagine. Uh, they're, uh, they're for sale all over the place. Uh, uh, factories that use these machines are going down. I've seen, we see auctions all the time, 20, 30, 40 of these things being auctioned in the same auction, just on the auction block going off as these companies close across America. If you compete at those auctions, you compete against Asians who are buying the equipment. It's going there. Same thing is true of injection molding machines. We're interested in making these CPK models so that they could be available for kids cheaply. So Noah's been watching injection molding machines every week. You could buy all the injection molding machine equipment you want. I'm talking about big machines that weigh 10, 20 tons that turn out plastics. Uh, there, too, you compete against the Asians in the auctions. Americans aren't buying them. These, even down to bookbinding. Uh, we make a lot of children's books in connection with a curriculum that we made, and we at the auction that we went to in bookbinding. We got the equipment we needed except for the sewing machines. They all went to Asia. Uh, they're buying our equipment and they're taking it where it can be utilized without the taxes, regulations, and litigation which are on the backs of the American workers and prevent them from competing in the world. Uh, and this flow of equipment is not trivial. The society can't exist on the idea that others will make all of its things and it will ship them papers and lawyers in return. It, it doesn't work. It will not work. And it will take a century to rebuild, if we could. If we could get our freedom back, it would take a century to rebuild the legacy of what our, what our, our forefathers have, have given us. I, uh, 
spoke. I don't do it much anymore, but I used to speak occasionally at the local public school. We, I, I don't like public schools. I think they should be. Well, I'll tell you a story. I, I, I give speeches sometimes on global warming, and the guy asked me to speak to the Republican legislators of Maine. And uh, they're in the minority. The Democrats have control, and they're going to put the Kyoto Treaty into Maine. They were worried about this, and they asked me to give a talk to the Republicans. So there was a dinner about like this, uh, maybe a few more people, and it was all of the Republican members of the legislature of Maine. So I'm giving this talk on global warming. And, of course, what I'm saying is right. It's the right and it's truth. It's a science. But it's so different from what they read in the newspapers that you're standing there with a, wondering how long your credibility can hold up against this audience. But it seemed to be going all right. And I give my talk. And then uh, there were questions. And there were two or three nice questions. And then some guy gets up and he says, what do you think should be done about the public schools? And I thought, hey, this is over. You know, if I answer this guy, my credibility is dead. But anyway, as I said, I think the public schools should be closed. <laughs> and you would be astonished. I, I, it was a standing ovation that went on for five minutes. <laughs> Every Republican legislator. There were probably people in that room that didn't agree with me. But boy, you wouldn't have heard them. It was unbelievable. You would have been convinced if you'd seen that group that every Republican in Maine was ready to close the public schools tomorrow. And they probably, and they, of course, politics don't make it quite that way, but it was astonishing. In any case, uh, the, uh, uh, so we work on those things, but the, uh, um, the point I was making is about the rebuild. So this, I'll go back, I'm sorry, <laughs> it was 4 o'clock in Grants Pass High School. And I was asked to talk to these classes in Grants Pass High School now and then. And so I remember one day I was talking to them, and these trips were interesting because the children were younger then, and I'd leave them in the truck outside at six. And I would get to go talk to the students. When i come out, the students would tell me, my children would tell me what they saw. It was like going to the zoo. You know, they could see these people going by that were so odd. It was like going to a different country. But in any case, I remember one young man asked me a question, and I answered by telling him about the landing of men on the moon. All of you can probably remember where you were when, Le when Armstrong first put his steps on the moon. So I was telling him about this, and then I realized that I had an unusual experience, because older people can always tell you about things that were more primitive, how things, you know, when they used horse and buggies, or when they, your grandfather can tell you about how when he was, he was plowing with the horses and so on. But I was telling this young man about something that had happened 30 years ago that was a higher technological achievement than anything that had been done since. America had only gone down in space accomplishments in 30 years. Jane has a wonderful meeting for doctors for disaster preparedness once a year. And she had Lowell Wood talk at this meeting once. And he was speaking because he had been asked by the government to design a way to go to Mars. And he and another man in alternate methods have both pointed out you could go to Mars with men for $30 billion. And the government didn't like this. They wanted a $500 billion program. But uh, he opened his talk by showing a picture of the moon rockets. You know, they never failed. Every one of them worked except for those that weren't fired. He looked at that, and he's looking at it. And this is the man who invented the brilliant Pebbles uh, system of strategic defense and uh, a protege of Edward Tellers. And he put a picture of the... Apollo rocket up, and he says, this is the finest piece of space hardware that has ever been designed before or since. 
And he says, you know, the cost of these was such, he's telling us this 25 years later, that we could have sent one of these to the moon every six weeks for the last 25 years for the cost of the space program, what's been spent on it. But, of course, we didn't because of the uh, uh, intrusion of bureaucracy into this. I, uh, uh, my father was an engineer. He built chemical plants. He built a wonderful plant down in Cedar Rift, Texas. I took the children to see it once. But these plants, you know, the infrastructure of the United States has been built for us mostly by previous generations. And that bureaucracy, that, that productive capacity is gradually wearing out, wearing down, now being shipped abroad. If we don't stop the problem of the taxes, regulation, and litigation, you won't have the tools that you should have in medicine. I, when I look at medicine, and since I've done a lot of medical research, I've, I've worked with a lot of physicians, and I've never met one who didn't want the best for his patients. I've never met one who didn't want his people to get well and would do anything he could to help them. But I know that the tools that physicians work with, because of the science I know about this, are 50 years behind the times. The tools you're working with are just unbelievably primitive, and the things that could change it for you are bottled up behind the taxes, litigation, and regulation. And your society is now getting bottled up behind it. And believe me, when they buy the last machines and nothing is produced in the United States, they're going to stop taking your paper. And unless this is uh, changed, it, it will be a, a terrible thing. I, uh, I know that I have many libertarian friends. I see, I think, some of them here. And uh, they advocate that in this election we punish the Republicans because they haven't done what we wanted. And, of course, they haven't done many things that we wanted. But why are we going to punish all the rest of us with them? Because uh, the man that Bush is running against is, is uh, a proponent of all the things that are shutting down our country. And it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's probably the most important election in my lifetime. And I hope that people will consider the fact that you don't have an opportunity to vote for the best man. The only decision to be made in November is which one of these guys will be president. One of them has taken steps to drop taxation. They're small steps. He has moved in the right direction on taxation. He's removed in the right direction in regulation, and he's moving in the right direction in litigation. The other guy wants to go the other way in spades, and the fate of our country probably depends on this because we can't spend much more time the Chinese are going to build 60 more nuclear power plants in the next five years. And after that, they'll build more. And as you know, in China, they are graduating six to 700,000 engineers a year, and we graduate 60,000. Eighty percent, and I don't like communists, and it's still a terrible communist country, 80 percent of the communists at the top echelons running communist China today are scientists and engineers. We're not up against politicians and lawyers. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take a few questions. If you want.